as you're turning in your Bible to 2 Corinthians, I wanted to tell you a little story about the hymn you just sang. If you noted at the bottom of the page, it gives the name of the lady who wrote the hymn, but the man who put the music to the hymn was a man named George Beverly Shea. And unless you're over 50, you have no clue as to who George Beverly Shea is. Billy Graham died this last year, and Billy Graham's song leader, excuse me, Billy Graham's soloist for most of his career was a bass named George Beverly Shea. And you go, so, well, George Beverly Shea was, as a young man, a handsome man and a great singer, and back in the 50s and late 40s, the big thing was, was musicals. People were tired of World War II. Thank you. People were tired of World War II. They were tired of, the, of scrimping and saving on the home front and, tire, and rationing. They were tired of being in battle, and they wanted something to, a million miles away. So musicals were the thing. Now, a lot of guys don't like musicals, but a lot of women like musicals, and some guys find it a diversion. So they were make, cranking out a lot of musicals out of Hollywood. They were looking for leading men men who were good-looking and could sing. And I'm not sure if that qualifies anybody in this room, but anyway, and Hollywood was looking for them, and George Beverly Shea was considered good-looking, and he had a great bass voice and was invited to audition for Hollywood. And so the hymn you just sang was the hymn that he sang at his audition. I don't want to be a great Hollywood star. I want to be Jesus' man. And he turned down the Hollywood audition, and went back to being a Christian and singing where he could. He was tapped by Billy Graham to be his soloist, and he sang before more people in person in history than any other singer in history. Isn't that interesting? He chose Christ and said, well, I'll pass up a Hollywood career and what that means, but I'll have a bigger career than Hollywood could have ever given me. The world shall be my stage and I shall sing about Christ till he was an older man. Anyway, in 2 Corinthians 6, if you've turned there by now, I've given you enough time. Paul's writing his second letter to his problem child, his high-maintenance child. If you have a number of children, hopefully they're all nice kids. But once in a while, you get a, what's called a high-maintenance child, where you better watch this one because this one's going to get into it, sure enough. And, uh, no, Mom, I didn't cut my hair. What made you say that? You go, well, the, the chunk missing out of your scalp was the first giveaway or whatever it was. And Paul writes two letters to his high-maintenance child, the Corinthian church. The first letter deals with 20 problems, 20 problems that were affecting the church. And yet he calls them saints. They were holy ones set apart by God. Though they had a ton of problems, they were still Christ's church, and he was still working there. Second Corinthians adds some things he didn't get to in the first letter, corrects some things they had gotten wrong in the meantime. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, through the first verse in chapter 7. Now remember, the chapter divisions and verses weren't put in until the 10th century AD. So in the Middle Ages and the 10th century is when they divided things into chapters and verses. Otherwise, you just had Corinthians or 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and just kind of read through it. But it was helpful to find things if you break it up. But not all the divisions were inspired, shall we say. Sometimes they would stop too soon or too late or whatever. So we'll read chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. And he's telling them about God's call upon their lives to be holy. And in case you were asleep last week or weren't here, last week we talked about that God has a universal call on every believer to be holy. 
He said, I didn't save you to be like a whirling. I saved you to be like my son, Jesus Christ. A universal call. Every single solitary believer has the call upon their lives to be holy. Not just ministers, not just missionaries, not just odd ducks, people who have extra time, money, and spare time and want to be um, holy, but every Christian is called to be holy. And this is his word to the Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's a, a false god known to the Corinthians, an idol. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? His logic is you don't unite yourself in a relationship with an unbeliever, and normally it's dating and marriage, but it could be in a partnership in business or some other thing where you are dependent upon the unbeliever to have this relationship go. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And this is a quotation from the Old Testament, and these are words that basically say, I'm in a covenant relationship with you. The, the Father and the Son entered into a covenant before time began. The Father said, I want to send you, and the Son said, I want to go. And for you going, the Father says, I will give you a people that you cannot count from every tribe and tongue and people group on the face of the planet. He says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, meaning leave the pagans, leave the Egyptians, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have then such promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Don't quit where you are. You haven't reached a plateau that you can stop at. We're to be followers of the Lord and we're to grow in holiness and grow in grace all of our lives. I was converted at the age of 20 and so I saw that I had a lot of areas in my life that were out of whack. They weren't in line with God's word. Over the course of my life, as he's renewed my mind and shown me in his word what pleases him, my life is to line up with what his word says. And he says, you never make it in this life. None of us will be perfect. If your spouse says they're perfect, say, well, Pastor Martin said nobody's perfect in this life, not even you. And that's true of me too. This has been a very convicting two-message series to work on because I see the sins in my life. And Lord, who am I to speak to these people? Oh, yes, but it's not based upon what I've done, but what Christ has done. Every, every believer has the perfect righteousness of Christ. We showed that last fall when I went, went through the message. What did Jesus mean when he said it is finished? Salvation's been accomplished if you put your trust in him. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we, believing sinners, might become the righteousness of God in him. All of my sins were put placed on Christ. He bore the condemnation, the judgment, the damnation, do my sins. And his perfect record of righteousness, his 24-7, 365 obedience to the Father is credited to me in place of my unrighteousness. So I can come in the presence of the Father wearing Christ's righteousness, having no outstanding sins clamoring for my judgment. I'm perfect in God's eyes in that sense. Now he says, I want you to grow up over the course of your life. And that's what the second message is about. What means has God given us to pursue holiness? 
Or you can put it, how in the world am I supposed to do what you talked about last week? And so we're going to try to show you two things. First of all, God is not only the one who saved you, but God is the one who sanctifies you. God is the one who makes you holy. But unlike your salvation, your sanctification, or your growing in holiness and grace is something that God wants you to cooperate with him. He doesn't sanctify you over your dead body. You don't lay in a hammock eating chocolate watching ESPN and think you're going to become a man of God or a woman of God. God wants you to pursue holiness alongside him based upon what Christ has already done. I'm trying to live a holy life not because I'm trying to earn my salvation. Christ has already done that. I want to live a holy life because I want to please my father. I want to be like my elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, first point, the work of Christ in saving us and sanctifying us. Christ saved you and Christ sanctified you. How do I mean that? Well, in the Old Testament, Jonah, it says in the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. If a person's going to be saved, they're not going to save themselves. God's going to save them. In the New Testament, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, what you do, that no one can boast. If you're a Christian, you can't look at a non-Christian and say, I was more humble than you and more sensitive, more spiritual. Baloney, you weren't more anything, so maybe more lost, but God chose to save you. For by grace you've been saved. Salvation is of the Lord. Both Testaments make clear also that God not only saves you, but he sets you apart, marks you out as special. That word would be sanctify or to, to, set, to set apart as separate and holy. Holy means set apart. God's holy, holy, holy to the superlative degree. There's nothing you can compare with God. Nobody you can compare with God. In the Old Testament, God reveals that he's the one who will see to it that we're sanctified. The book of Leviticus is the, is the whole book dedicated to holiness, and this is what he tells Israel. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I, the Lord, am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord, the one who sanctifies you. For you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, and I am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. I've separated you, and I will see to it that you're holy. I will make you holy. In the New Testament, Paul tells the Corinthians, and again, if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, um, he talks about the kind of people that were saved. He says, you don't think that you can live like this and be a Christian, and, and keep living like that and be a Christian. And he, says, and he goes through a list of vile sins. It looks like San Francisco, or Vegas, or Dallas-Fort Worth. In other words, here's all the gross sins of a culture. He says, don't think that a person can call themselves a Christian and keep living that way. And then he says, and such were some of you. In other words, people from all those backgrounds were saved by God out of the Corinthian mess and made to be Christians. And he says, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification. Christ became our wisdom. We figured out which end is up. We saw what reality was. We came to Christ. But he's not only that, he's also our righteousness and he is our sanctification. Because we are now united to Christ, is Christ holy? Is Christ in the bosom of the Father? Are you going to make it to heaven? 
You are, not because you're smarter than others or more persevering than others or more disciplined than others. You'll make it to heaven because you're united to Christ and Christ will see to it that you make it to heaven. And if you say, well, I don't want to do that, I don't want to, you know, there used to be a phrase back in the, up through the 70s, juvenile delinquent. It's a pretty rare word anymore. He's just an emotionally challenged young person. Anyway, these emotionally challenged young people used to be called the juvenile delinquents. God has no juvenile delinquents in his family. I don't want to give any of you parents ideas, but you can call the police if you have a recalcitrant child who will not obey and will not live according to the house rules. You can have them arrested. I've only known a couple of parents ever to do it, and it was a disaster. They had lost control of their families and lost the respect of their children. God has no juvenile delinquents in his family. If I want to be a hardhead, God goes, you really want to butt heads? Or would you, would you like to bend over and have me work on your backside a while? In other words, God disciplines his children. Hebrews chapter 12 says if you're without discipline, you're not really his kid. You're illegitimate. And it's logical. When you go up and down the street, do you just see every kid who's acting up and you go over and tan their hide? Well, you get arrested. They're not your kids but I could discipline my own children because it's appropriate. In fact, I heard one man say, do you want to know where a child lives? This is what you do. You're going down the street and these kids are playing in the street and you call the kid over and then you pick up a stick and you hit him with it. Whoa, the kid runs home. That's where he lives. And the big man with the red face who looks really angry who's running out of the house, that's his father if he's gonna deal with you. But you don't, you don't do that because you only deal with your own children. God disciplines every children of his and he chastens those who are disobedient. Later he told the Thessalonians, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole being, spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He didn't save you for practice, hoping that he could get the job done. He saves to the uttermost. You will make it to heaven. I will make it to heaven. That's my goal. That's your goal, but we will make it again because of the grace of God in Christ. In Christian salvation, God brings sinners to himself, separates them from the world, delivers them from sin and Satan, and welcomes them into his family as his adopted children. This is how the New Testament thinks of believers. In fact, it calls us saints. This morning when I went to Heritage Baptist, we pulled up and a couple of friends said hi. And I said, you know, I'm glad to be here this morning. I'll be over with Sovereign Joy in the afternoon, but I'm glad to be with the saints here at Heritage. It's a joy. And I said, or there's St. Rocky. This man's name is Rocky. And there's St. Larry. And, and we were all joking. And St. Steve, it doesn't really sound like something you'd read in the books. St. Steve, it doesn't sound right. Or St. Rocky. But technically, each one of you are saints. So you can kind of go up to each other after the service, go, oh, St. Aloysius, or whatever your name is. And uh, you can encourage one another. But by the grace of God, you are saints. And he wrote this also to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians, again, that church had 20 problems that he had to address and rebuked them sternly. But they were still believers. They were just very immature and had to grow up. That doesn't mean they weren't his. It doesn't mean they weren't going to make it to glory. It does mean that they are his, and he will have to discipline and train his kids and bring them up. So, God who in eternity past chose to save a people, 
chose to save you if you're a believer, passed by others and chose to save you, he says, I will see to it that you make it to glory. I didn't send my son on a fool's errand. I didn't send my son to kind of sort of save people for kind of a few years. If you're to be saved, you're to be saved to the uttermost. God wants you to make it to heaven. But, having said that, he doesn't save you against your will. Excuse me, he doesn't sanctify you against your will. He doesn't make you holy against your will. If you don't want to be holy, then you need to question if you're even a believer at all. As I said last week, at 20, being holy sounded kind of like stuff for old people. Now I'm an old person. But it sounded like something for old people or people who were drab or had no life. Or, you know, I, I looked around last week making sure that no lady wore her hair in a bun. But you know, there are certain stereotypes you have of what it means to be holy. And I, and I wasn't sure I wanted to be that. And then I saw in Scripture, son, if you don't want to be holy, you're none of mine. And God re- rebuked me for my lackadaisical la-di-da attitude. Having been saved, God wants us to live in holy, holy, holy lives. My life is vastly different than it was, uh, well, almost 50 years ago. In January, it'll be 50 years since the Lord saved me. I can remember like it was yesterday. I mean, you're in the fast lane on the freeway to hell. You wake up and you're on the other side of the freeway going the other direction. You go, whoa, how did I get here? The grace of God. The grace of God. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't depressed, suicidal, alcoholic, a druggie. All these other things I might have been, could have been, might have been if things had gone on. I was just lost. But God chose to save me. He chose to bring a Christian into my life. And that's another story. By one offering, God has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, 14. By a single offering, Christ has perfected us for all time. That's our status before God. But now God is raising us up so that our lifestyle will more and more approximate what God has won for us in Christ. This speaks of an ongoing process. We are being made holy. So the question is not, have you attained perfection? That's not going to happen in this life. The question is, are you growing? Are you at the same place you were two years ago, five years ago? Are you telling 10-year-old war stories about your Christianity and not really much is going on currently? Well, then you need to ask yourself if you're really growing. Though salvation is entirely of the Lord, growth in godliness and holiness is something God wants us to work out with him. One of the things that my father helped me with growing up was, and my dad's generation wasn't the kind that gushed and told you they loved you all the time, and, oh, you're the most wonderful kid in the world. Never heard that. But my dad wanted to do things with me. Son, this is how you hold a football. This is how you put your finger on the strings. This is how you shoot a basketball. This is how you make the ball spin. This is how you grip a golf club. Well, I learned those things, and he would put his hands on mine, like on the golf club, and show me how to do it. He'd show me with his hand how to put my hand on the football. And your Heavenly Father wants to show you. He wants to make you holy, but he will help you grow in holiness. I came up with two big words. You know, if we're talking theology, theologians like to use big words. And they actually happen to be helpful big words, so I'm going to use them anyway. The first one is monergistic You go, yeah, I had that when I was a junior in high school, but I got over it. No, it's not mononucleosis. It's monoergistic, monergistic, one energy source. 
The only energy source, the only power source, the only thing that saved you was the grace of God. And salvation is monergistic. It has one power source. But sanctification, you're growing up in holiness, is synergistic, two or more power sources. God working in me, for God is at work within you both to will and to do his good pleasure, but he's not sanctifying you over your dead body. You're not gonna lay in a hammock and eat chocolates and watch ESPN and become a man of God. It's just not gonna work that way. He will flip over the hammock and he'll turn off the TV and he'll take away the bonbons and you need to take some laps. He will help you grow in holiness. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work within you. It's not work out your salvation with hammocks and bonbons. It's work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God didn't have to save me. He could have passed me by. There's a hymn, I don't know if it's in this hymn book, but pass me not, O gentle Savior. It's a hymn from the 19th century that there was still a memory of Calvinism in the country and the idea that God didn't have to save you. He could have passed you by. And the scripture talks about passing by people. You know, there are people who say, I'm shaking my fist at God, I'm rebelling. No, son, you're not doing anything. God just gave you over to yourself. If I was speaking on the biblical doctrine of hardening, you know what hardening is? When God hardens a person, he doesn't send a ray of, ah, and suddenly a nice kid's walking down the street and suddenly his knuckles are dragging and he's a Neanderthal and really an evil person. That's not how God hardens. You know how God hardens a person? He does nothing to them. The Bible says God's the potter and we're the clay. Hello, moms with children. How do you harden a piece of clay? Do you have to, do, do you have to own a kiln to harden clay? Well, no, you just leave it in a shoebox up, up in the shelf in the closet and come back a couple months later. Hey, what's this rock doing in the shoebox? Well, it used to be clay, but just interacting with the air around it, it gradually turned to stone. God didn't infuse hardening into that clay. It just became a rock. God doesn't have to do anything to you. And if you go, oh, God's not going to save me. Well, put your hand down because God just gave you over to yourself. You're only testifying to how lost you are. I didn't realize how lost I was until after he saved me. He could have passed me by, but he didn't. Again, we can't work for our salvation, but the grace of God teaches us that we're to work with God. He's got his hands on the golf clubs with us. He's got his hands on the football with us, but we're to work on our salvation alongside God. And I've got six means here that he's provided. So I talked to Dennis, and this service goes till 5.30. Is that right, Dennis? No. What time, does, seriously, does the service end? 4.30? 4? Okay. If I end at 4.30, you'll clap. So, Okay. Six means God has provided for his people to work alongside him in the pursuit of holiness. First of all, God gave you his holy son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your example and who is your savior and who is your sanctifier. Hebrews chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race, the marathon race. It's not a hundred yard dash as some people think. Look at that meteor. And then you don't find that person six weeks to six months later because all they were were a meteor. They just flashed across the horizon. They were a, a six-week wonder. You can grow a squash in Texas, I think, in about six weeks in the summer. And if that's what you want to be, have at it. But if you want to be an oak tree, it takes a considerable longer. So when the scripture says, run the race that's set before you, he's speaking of a marathon, not a sprint. 
Let us run with endurance the marathon race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's not the best thing. It's the beginner and the ender. You begin by your Christian life by, oh man, for the first time I see that I need a Savior and Christ is the Savior. You know, in my BC days, yeah, Jesus Christ died on the cross in Palestine, and Mickey Mantle was my favorite baseball player, and George Washington was the first president, and none of them made a hell of beans difference in my life. Because I didn't see myself as a sinner. I had no need. Who cares? But if you begin to see your sin, have any creeping sense of, the Bible is true. I'm a rebel against God, and my rebellion is proved by my disobedient acts, my insubordination toward authority. I am a sinner. And then you go, well, I'm going to try to reform my life. And then you try to reform your life, and you can't reform your life. What am I going to do? I'm, I can't save myself, and I'm going to be damned if I stay in the condition I'm in. Bingo, the light goes on. Oh, that's why Christ came. That's why Christ died on the cross. That's why we need someone as a go-between between us and God. He took our sins upon himself. His righteousness is given to us as a gift. As I say so many times, that's true. This ain't a fairy tale. This is the gospel. If you blow this off, you're not blowing off a fairy tale. You're blowing off your only hope of salvation. He's the beginner and the ender of our faith. When you see Christ, when you come to Christ, you begin your faith, and as you run your race as a Christian, you look back to Christ. Does God love me? Look at Christ. Is, are all my sins really forgiven? Look at Christ. We're to study Christ, fixing our eyes on him. I learned years ago a phrase, we are to practice the gaze and glance life. We gaze at Christ through our Christian life, and we glance at ourselves. We're to look at him, the author and the finisher, the beginning and ender of our Christian life. He begins our Christian life for us, and he takes us to the end. We're to look at him. We're to gaze at him and glance at ourselves periodically. How am I doing? Let's take inventory. Am I farther along than I was five years ago, two years ago? Am I walking with the Lord faithfully? But too often we practice this the opposite. And some of us, by temperament, are very introspective, kind of melancholy people. We have ingrown eyeballs, and so we look inward. We don't look at Christ, which is the equivalent of always looking in your navel. I've discovered if you always look in your navel, you may find Lent, but you won't find Christ. You won't find any of the glories of being a Christian. You'll just find Lent or other nasty things going in there. There's a lady in my church who came out to me and she told me the last six months of my life have been miserable. I said, well, what's going on? She said, well, for six months I didn't want to come to church. I said, well, was I really blowing it? She goes, it wasn't you. Didn't make any difference who was preaching. Whatever, I, whatever anybody preached, whatever I heard was, you're not doing enough. You're a terrible Christian. You're not doing enough. That's all I heard for six months. And I begged my husband some weeks not to take, take us to church. And thankfully, he didn't listen. And she said, a few weeks ago, I went in the church library after services. And I'm standing there while my kids are looking at books. And we had a large library and lots of kids' books and lots of adult books. And while the kids were looking for their books, she was looking at books just kind of idly and the poor doubting Christian drawn to Christ. So she said, I pulled it out. It was by an American Puritan. She said, I didn't read the book. Didn't have time. Didn't read the whole preface. I just read three pages of the preface. And what's that? And he says, the problem with most Christians is they're always looking at themselves, 
and they're not looking at Christ. Is Christianity about who Christ is and what he did, or is it about you? Should we change them from Christianity to whatever your name is? Should that be the center pillar of our faith? Well, no. But too often we look at ourselves. And she said, boom, it hit me. That's exactly what I was doing. And I repented of it right there in the library, and my mind has been clear now these last several weeks. Because Christianity had boiled down to it's all about her and her performance. It was never about you and your performance or me and my performance. It was always about Christ and what he did, his performance. Is he a perfect savior? Yes. Did he pay for all of my sins? Yes. Is there one sin clamoring for my judgment that hasn't been atoned for? No. What am I going to do about righteousness? Christ's righteousness is given to me. I have the righteousness of Christ to wear for eternity. As long as Christ exists, I wear his righteousness before the Father. So looking at the Son, so what does Paul say to the Corinthians in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3? All of us beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He says, if, as you're looking in the mirror and beholding the Lord, as you're looking at him, you become like the reflection you see. Only when you look in the, in the right mirror, you don't see yourself, you see Christ. And he says, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Looking at Christ over the course of your life, your life is going to be changed. It's not like saying, you know, you look in the mirror one day and you're Godzilla and you look in the next day and you're some handsome person. It's not this 24-7, boom, there you go. But it is a gradual change over the course of your life. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. You know, there's a book out, We Become What We Worship. But it's also true, we become who we worship. If it's all about you, then look at yourself all the time and be introspective and think Christianity is all about you and miss the boat. But it's called Christianity because it's about Christ. You know, you can do away with Moses and it doesn't affect Judaism. You can do away with the, with the Gautama, it doesn't affect Buddhism. You can do away with Muhammad, it doesn't affect Islam. Do, 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 here's all the hoops you have to jump through to be a good member of that religion. But if you do away with Christ, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So God gives us his holy son and said, he saves you, he keeps on saving you. Look at him. Read the Gospels. I bet if you're the average evangelical Christian, you spend your time in the Psalms and the Epistles. And that's pretty much it. You read the Gospels once in a while. Leviticus, maybe never. Other books in the Old Testament, once every millennia. And you don't really know your Bible really well. Read the Gospels more. What kind of person was Christ? He's God in the flesh. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father looks like? Take a long, hard look at me. I reveal the Father to you. How did Jesus teach, treat repenting sinners? He slapped them and then kicked them when they're down. He was really rough on unrepentant, proud religious leaders. I wouldn't want to be a Pharisee in his presence. But he never treated people harshly or meanly. On the cross, when he's being crucified, can you imagine you had the power I have to do is say, move this little finger and all those Roman soldiers become poof, they become piles of ash. I'll get you, poof, poof, poof. Is that what he did? Did he turn his enemies to piles of ash? No. He forgave those who put him on the cross who drove the nails through his hands. Look at Jesus in the Gospels. Number two, he gave us 
not only the, first, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ to be our savior and the one who takes us to heaven, but he gives us the Holy Spirit. Imagine having the supernatural presence of God, the Holy Spirit living with inside you. And he is called the Holy Spirit. He's not called the kind of sort of Holy Spirit or the once in a while Holy Spirit or on a good day Holy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces supernatural grace in your life to be different. I was talking with Eric, my friend who came with me today and talking about what it's like to be converted and to see your life change. And yes, I knew I had some things in my life really needed to change, but some stuff in my life was changing and I wasn't even trying. What was going on? Well, a new birth had occurred. I was a new person. God was growing a new me, but it was weird to see yourself growing and you're not trying to be different. You are just becoming different. God the Holy Spirit's working in your life. If you want an exciting read, and pastors will tell you one of the hardest passages of the New Testament to preach on is John's Gospel, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Because that whole body of material is what Jesus spoke to the disciples on the last night. The night that he was betrayed, that's what he said. This is, the, you know, this is the end of my training of you guys. It's going to be all over soon. Get it right. You're going to need the Holy Spirit's help to remember this stuff. So, we're given the teaching of our Lord on the last night at the Last Supper. What kinds of things does Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're not going to make any progress in the Christian life without me. And he says, I'm sending you the comforter, also called the helper, the enabler. He has been with you, and he shall be in you. The Holy Spirit has been with you, but you are, he is going to be in you. Now, there's a sense you can ask the average Christian, would you rather have Jesus standing right next to you, or would you rather have the Holy Spirit living in you? They go, well, the, the personal presence of Christ would be kind of great, and I could see him and touch him and talk to him, and, and that'd be helpful. So, let's see, how many Christians are there on the face of the earth? Maybe a billion, I don't know. So, how much time are you going to get with him? I mean, you say, sorry guys, you can't have him, he's mine. Because Jesus was only in one place at a time. When he was up north in Galilee, he wasn't down south in Judea. Christ said, it's for your benefit that I go away than if I stay. For if I don't go away, the comforter will not come. He's been with you, but he's going to be in you. Now for 21st century Gentiles, it's like, whatever. But for a first century Jew, this is like, what, God the Holy Spirit, who manifests himself in the temple once a year to the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and the Shekinah glory shines above the mercy seat, the visible manifestation of God. This God is going to live inside? Yes. He's been living in the temple in Jerusalem, so to speak, but now he's going to live in permanently cleansed temples. Our, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Hmm, that sounds biblical, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the combined group of believers is also the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3. It's better to have the Holy Spirit than to have Jesus physically with you because the amount of time you'd get with him would be kind of small. But you have the Holy Spirit 24-7 to enable you to be different, to teach you the word of God, to help you to understand it, to guide you, to strengthen you. In fact, at one point, Paul even says, do you know what the Holy Spirit does? 
Think of him as the one who produces the fruit in your life. When Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches, you could say, well, the Holy Spirit's the sap, so to speak, that empowers what happens in the branches. And Paul says to the um, Galatians in 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is, and he lists nine things, which is one cluster. He says, they're not nine fruits, separate things that are divisible. He says, no, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. You're not breaking any of God's laws by being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God wants to produce those things in our lives and will over time. Earlier I read from 2 Corinthians about beholding Christ in a mirror and we're transformed as we gaze upon him. What I stopped short of reading the whole verse because the whole verse says this happens as God the Holy Spirit is working within you. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the one who's been assigned in the Trinity to transform our lives from the inside out. Now, one of the hardest things to deal with as a Christian is putting to death remaining sin. The Bible says that you're cleansed from the guilt of your sins and the condemnation of your sins, but not in this life are you cleansed from the presence of sin. You have sin in your physical body, so to speak, until you die. And that is a great vexation to Christians. You have the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 going, wretched man that I am, oh, I just wish I could do away with this body of sin. The stuff I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the stuff I do want to do, I don't do it nearly like I want to. Who's going to rescue me from this misery? Well, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes on to say. Who's going to help you put sin to death? There's a biblical word called mortification. The only thing we use in English is a mortuary or a mortician. It's a place where you take dead people and they embalm them and they put them on display. Doesn't he look like himself? As one comedian said years ago, if you laid in bed, people wouldn't say, you look like yourself. They'd say, you look like you're dead. But in, in, the, in the mortuary, we say he looks like himself. That's a little bit of humor if you get it, but it's kind of a dark humor. Anyway, how are you going to have the strength to put to death sin? As I said last week, most of us deal with our sins this way. Right, I shouldn't be doing this. It's publicly embarrassing or it gets me in trouble. If I give it a bath, spray Chanel on it, call it Fifi, and keep it in the backyard, can I keep my sin? I mean, it's really not going to get under control, and I'm going to manage it really well. That doesn't fly with God. He goes, no, I want you to put it to death. And we go, right, I mean, you know, people play video games, and they watch war movies, and oh, macho, because I killed 87,000 people in my video game. Watch a movie like The Last of the Mohicans or Braveheart. Do you know what mano a mano hand-to-hand combat is like? You've got a big a- a- axe and maybe a, sledge ha- a sledgehammer kind of axe, and this other guy's got a sword, and you're going to wail on each other. It's bloody, it's gory, it's up close, it's, it's messy. Even people who, you know, if, if meat wasn't shrink-wrapped at the store, they wouldn't want to stand there and watch a butcher butcher a cow or a pig or a chicken in order to put it in in a little pan for you. Killing something is gory, hard work. And and where do you get the strength to put sin to death? 
particularly sin that has enticed you and conned you for years. Paul tells the Romans, for by the Spirit you are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Only God the Holy Spirit can help you put sins to death. I was converted in 1969. I've been fighting my sins for almost 50 years, and I still have to fight them. I'm not there yet. One of my heroes graduated from Wheaton and went to Dallas Seminary, and it was a freshman in 1952. He heard the aged president of the seminary pray in chapel one day, Lord, help me from, to keep me from being a dirty old man. He was 73 years old. My hero said, what? 73? I thought you were dead in the head and everywhere else at 73. No, this guy was still a very virile man and he didn't want to be a dirty old man, but he still had the temptations out there. Putting sin to death is not a picnic and it requires the power and the grim reality of the Holy Spirit to help you put your remaining sins to death. Ask for his help and enablement as you do it. Third, God gave us a holy book. He gave us the Holy Son. He gave us the Holy Spirit. How are you gonna have the wisdom to navigate this world? He gives us supernatural wisdom in his word. That last night, I remember I said John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is one teaching and one night, the last night you're gonna spend with your key men. In John 17, where he's praying, he's praying to the Father, he says, Father, sanctify these men, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. I can't be sanctified in worldly things. They're not, going to make, they're not going to help me be the man I want to be. And you learn to turn off the spigot. Uh, maybe 80 hours of watching TV or some kind of media isn't what I need. Maybe I need some other things renewing my mind. We're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do you renew your mind? <clears throat> it used to be that one of the first developers of computers was a Stanford University uh, professor, and he came up with the phrase GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you programmed into a computer, well, what was what was gonna come out? So what do you program your hard drive with? I can't, hard, I can't program it with filth and expect to press this button and have good things come out. I need to reprogram my mind, I need to renew my mind. The psalmist said in the Old Testament, I have stored up your word in my heart, why? That I might not sin against you. Sometimes we just need to be reminded and the Lord can bring a verse to mind when you're about to do something and you, for whatever reason, you're not even thinking about it, you're just gonna do it with some friends and, and the Holy Spirit brings to mind a verse that says, you know, you don't need to be doing that and you don't. Psalm 36, I think, describes really well what's going on here. Psalm 36 says, in your light we see light. The Bible is like a lens, it's like wearing glasses. I didn't wear glasses till I was 45, and then I needed bifocals so I could see. And then at 50, I've developed astigmatism. Astigmatism is here's the Washington Monument, and here's the reflecting pool, and here's the Washington Monument again in the reflecting pool. But astigmatism is you see the same thing upside down beneath it, which it's hard to read that way. So you need your glasses adjusted. So I didn't have glasses till I was 45. I thought, this is the way life will always be. When I became a Christian, I realized I needed to put on the lens of scripture so I could see the world the way God does. You know, think of the values of the world and the values of God are usually totally upside down. 
The world says, you want to get ahead? Stomp on everyone else. Put yourself forward. Be a man. The Bible says, if you want to become a leader to all, become a servant to all. Oh, that's no fun. That's not going to sell. Well, it will with God. It won't with the world, but it will with God. But how are you going to know that if you don't renew your mind from Scripture? In your light, we see light. And the Bible begins to give you wisdom you didn't have before. Reading the book of Proverbs helps you deal with people. It's like reading Pilgrim's Progress, where you have all these people in the book of Proverbs fleshed out. Mr. Worldly Wise Man, nickname Slick. Why is it when I'm around this person, he's always cutting corners and he's always showing me ways to sneak around and do stuff like this. I don't feel right when I'm hanging out with this person doing the things they like to do. Well, how do we see these things if we don't have the word teaching us? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. This is how you do it. For a reproof, you're wrong. For correction, this is how you do it right. For training in righteousness, being holy, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, if you want to be a man or woman of God, you, you and I need to build your life upon this book and to know this book and not just read it in your spare time. Or as I put it in my notes here, I know some people and they don't read their Bibles, they read little devotional snippets like Our Daily Crumbs. That's not the name of it, but that's functionally what it is. You're not going to become a man of God reading Our Daily Crumbs. As I heard one man speak many years ago, if you're going to be a man or woman of God ever, you need to build your life on and around God and his word, not just fit it in once in a while in your spare time. And so learning as a young Christian, I'm going to spend time with God at the beginning of my day. There's a certain percentage of people who are not early morning people. They couldn't read their Bible if they were paid. Fine, whatever it is, but you need to set aside time to be alone with God. That's not your primary intake, but it should be your consistent intake. Your primary intake of the Word of God should be on the Lord's day with the Lord's people. And God called a man, trained a man, and brought him to you to open God's Word to you so you can understand it and dig in on a deeper level. But you need to be in it during the week so it's not just, this guy's from Neptune. Where's he, where's, I don't know where Second Habakkuk is. I can't find it in my Bible. And well, if you don't know your Bible, Someone told me as a young Christian, if you live in a neighborhood long enough, you get to know the streets. If you have a well-read Bible, you can almost tell me what side of the page this passage is on in your Bible. You've got notes in the margin there, and those are precious notes to you. If you're not reading your Bible regularly and don't really have a steady intake of the Word of God, your Bible is not really going to provide much help to you. And you're going to make some serious life errors, and you're going to have some real sad things in your life because you wouldn't listen to the Lord. Do, do children ever make mistakes because they won't listen to their parents? If you do this, you're going to crash and burn. No, I won't. I'm me. You know, parents don't try not to say, I told you so. But we can do that with God. Number four, God gave us a holy family to live in. You look around and go, Really? Really, that's the best God could come up with? This group? This is the holy family that God has for me? Yes, by the grace of God. You know what would be worse? If you were totally on your own. As a really stupid, I, you know, I'm stupid now, but I was really stupid back then. As a really stupid new convert, I thought Christianity was me and Jesus and my Bible. And 
the church was just like, it wasn't even the icing on the cake, it was those little flowery deals that people put on, you know, those little rosettes or whatever they are. I mean, it was like nothing to me. Me and Jesus and the Bible, that was Christianity. Lord goes, son, son. Actually, when he calls me Buster, okay, Buster, you're in for it. It's like, I don't want him to call me Buster, but he's had to call me Buster a few times. So I was really stupid. I didn't think I needed the church. And my life suffered as a result. My life showed it. I love what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's telling the Ephesians, this is where you came from, and this is what God brought you to. He says, remember that you used to be separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. And then it gets more grim. Having no hope, and without God, and in the world. And that's a perfect description of you if you're not a Christian. You're without hope, you're without God, and you're in the world, have at it. But then he goes on to say, but you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God because of what God's done for you in Christ. You're not all by yourself. You're not alone in this world. You know, a lot of times children growing up in Christian homes don't realize the depravity of their own hearts and they don't realize the depravity of the world because their parents, best as they can figure it out, try to help them and protect them and not let them get slimed by everything they could. And they go out into the world and they get hit in the teeth with a baseball bat and spit out teeth for six years. This is a very wicked world, a very sad world, a world where a lot of people shed a lot of tears over some really sad things. And to be on your own is a scary place to be. And God says, I'm not going to let you be by yourself. I'm going to put you in a family. It'll be better than the family you came from. Now, sometimes we make wrong thoughts about families. We think, and families can be disappointing. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you were disappointed with the family you grew up in? We live in a very sad day in our culture, and families are in a sad place. But the most important thing about a family is not who the kids are, but who the parents are. Who do you belong to? You know, if my dad was a garbage man, that would say something about my family. If my dad was the prime minister of England, that would say something about my family. My dad was neither a garbage man or the prime minister of England, but my heavenly father has become my father, and I'm now a member of the household of God. And that's more true even than my physical family. My physical family does not determine my eternity. Being in God's family does. We read earlier from Peter, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's your testimony, that's mine. The ultimate significance of a family, again, is not based on what kind of a kid you are, but who your father is. And if you're a believer, your father is, the, is God Almighty. You know, as I was working on these lessons for months, because I've preached them in a couple of places, it's been sad to me to read several books on holiness that are outstanding books, and you'd recognize the authors, and you'd recognize the books. None of them, I was shocked, mentioned the church as a means that God has provided to help you become holy. And these are, some of them are great reformed authors. None of them mention the church. I wouldn't be here today if the God hadn't got me in the church. And I was a Christian for several years before, like if you ever saw the movie with McFly, anybody in there? McFly, anybody in there? If you lived in the 80s, 
then Back to the Future. Hello, Steve, the church, where's the church in your doctrine of reality? Uh, I have no doctrine of the church in reality. And I've been a Christian six years. And I had struggled for six years because the church had no place. And I had to repent. I had no church. I only had nine commandments. I had no Lord's Day. I had a lot of things weren't right in my life. And my life had suffered because the church was not a major thing in my life. It's to be a gift to me. One of the things I've been a Christian many years, do you read your Bible? For those of you who are Bible readers, the word you. You, you. That's how we normally take the word you. It's singular, second person. Most of the time in the New Testament, it's plural, second person. All y'all, as we used to say in Georgia. All y'all, that's what they should put it in our New Testaments. Or in New Jersey, use guys. All y'all, that's who the church is. And so we read the New Testament epistles and it speaks about you all, you, you, you. Well, all of us need to be viewing the church as our place of great refuge and growth. God's given us a holy day, number five. One day in seven. I can think of one of my close friends. He was a very active man, national sales director of a big company. Got in the planes sometime on Sunday, came home Friday, burnout, made a lot of money, had a lot of stress, was trying to be a faithful Christian, and when he heard of the Lord's Day, man, I, I, I can't take a whole day in my life, can't stand the whole day, I need, you know, and all the things. After working at it for about a year and a half, he goes, the Lord's Day is my favorite day of the week. Whatever I have of sanity, it's because the Lord's Day gives me time to re reclaim my thoughts and my sanity. We read earlier from Genesis. We read in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. The first use of the word holy in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2, where he says, On the seventh day, God finished all of his work, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. One day in seven principle, he made it holy. This is the first use of the word holy in the Bible, talking about a holy day. God worked for six days, and the seventh day he took off. Jewish, Jesus kept the Jewish Sabbath. He labored for X number of days and took Saturday off as his holy day. He was a good Jew in that regards. After the resurrection of Christ, the first day of the week became the day on which the apostles and the churches began to meet. And the day was changed, but the one in seven principle was continued. On the first day of the week, Christ was raised from the dead. On the first day of the week, the Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost. On the first day of the week, John the Apostle in Revelation has his revelation. Paul tells the Corinthians, when you gather on the first day of the week for church, take a collection. It was on the first day of the week. One day in seven. Why? To rest from our labors. We were not created to work all the time. At the time of the French Revolution, they threw out Christianity we're going to reinvent the world. We're going to go from seven-day week, we're going to go to ten-day weeks, whatever. And we're not going to have any Lord's Day, any Sabbath, any church days off. We're going to work every day on ten-day cycles. It didn't last but a year, and people burned out and were rebelling and said, okay, we'll go back to square one. We'll have seven-day calendars and one day kind of as a rest day, but we're not going to call it the Lord's Day or anything like that. But we are not meant to work till we come apart. We're meant to work and then take a day off. But this day off is not just to relax our bodies, 
Although if you're a man who works as a physical laborer, you love the Lord's day because it's the one day your body can rest perhaps. It's a practice day for heaven, a day when you can do all the things you want to do and it's not encumbered by work or the government or something like that. Now unbelievers, they don't like the Lord's day. They don't like church. Man, an hour, an hour and a half. When is the sermon gonna be over? Do you wanna go to heaven? Is God going to be there? Yeah. No, not particularly. You want to go to hell? No. They're really in no man's land. They have no place to look forward to. They don't want to be in heaven because they don't love God and his presence would be a real drag. But going to hell is only experiencing his wrath and justice for eternity. But for a believer, the Lord's day is a slice of heaven, a little day to practice for what eternity will be like. One day to grow in grace, one day to practice, I can have no complaint that I have no time to read, no time to study, no time to pray over my Bible, no time to spend time with the Lord like I'd like to. I have a whole day. I can't have any complaint really that I don't have time to fellowship with other believers. I have the Lord's Day. We can have people over to our house. We can go to their house. We can do things at church. I can't have any real complaint that I don't have time to minister to others. I have the Lord's Day. I can invite unbelievers in my home. I can practice hospitality. I can go to nursing homes. Isaiah told the rebellious people of Israel, if you'll turn back from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you will honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and you will feed with the promised heritage of Jacob your father. One word of explanation, if you've read the 1689 Baptist Confession, which is the standard about this church, and there's a chapter on the Lord's Day, and one of the final things it says is recreation. You go, what? We can't go for a walk? We can't ride our bikes? We can't go out and shoot hoops with my kids and talk about the Lord? Well, remember, it's always good to study something in context. A text without a context becomes a pretext. I didn't invent it, but you heard it here, and you can take that home. A text without a context becomes a pretext. What's the context of that? The archbishop in England, in charge of the church of the whole nation of England, didn't like the Puritans and wanted to get rid of them. How can I get them rid of them? I know. We'll pass a law. We'll write a book of sports that are mandatory sports you have to do on Sunday. And the book of sports was written and inaugurated, and you had to promote these and, and indulge in them on Sunday. And the Puritans were going to say, said, we're not going to do that. And they said, you're gone. And that was the final end of the Puritans. One day, one Sunday, 2,000 ministers resigned on the same day. In a country the size of the state of Alabama, 2,000 of your best ministers resigned. The lights went out all over England. But the book of sports were mandatory sports, and that's what our confession is speaking against, is the mandatory sports that were ordered by the archbishop. That was just a freebie. It wasn't even part of the sermon. Okay, finally, I've got three minutes left here. God gives us, number six, the holy sacraments or the holy ordinances. You know, the Lord's Supper and baptism can be a real encouragement to your growth if you take advantage of it rightly. For years, I kind of, yeah, I was a one-off. I did my baptism. I did my thing. I'm in. I'm done. But baptism is not meant to be a one-and-done one thing or a one-off thing. 
It's meant to be one thing that you do one time, but every time you witness a baptism, it's an opportunity to rehearse what baptism stands for and what God did for you in Christ. If I read Romans chapter 6, have you forgotten that you were, when you were baptized into Christ, so to speak, you're baptized, you know, you died with him, you were buried with him, you were raised with him, you're living a new life with him? Do you realize what your baptism signifies? And you have a chance to review all that God did for you in saving you. That's an encouragement to holiness. And I can say the same thing about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper looks back to the Last Supper, the night Christ was betrayed, but it looks forward to Revelation 19 and the marriage feast of the Lamb. And you won't be, have to be on a diet because nothing in there will be bad for you. And you can eat as much as you want and you won't balloon out. And so every time you have the Lord's Supper, you're reminded of what Christ did for you and where you're going. Christ paid for all of my sins. He gave me his righteousness. The Father loves me, he loves me, the Spirit loves me and indwells me. And I'm on my way to heaven and I'm gonna enjoy, enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb. We'll get to sit down and indulge. My time's up. Happiness, excuse me, holiness is God's call upon each of us. And God's not just giving a squirt gun and say, son, go put out the fire of sin here. He's given us adequate means to pursue holiness. We have to realize, oh, I should do this, and I should be engaged. Let me give you one final concluding illustration that'll be very encouraging to you. I've shared this with several people, and they found it very encouraging. The experience of growing in holiness is counterintuitive. Uh, that sounds clever. What does that mean? I always like to use the word counterintuitive because I'm never quite sure how people take it, but anyway, it makes you sound cool. Anyway, so... Let's say we're all living in a coal mine. Have you ever seen what it looks like in a coal mine? Have you seen pictures? Uh, if you go to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, where I once lived, downtown Chicago, there's this museum, and underneath, there's a working coal mine. You can go down there, and there's guys digging out coal. And as you see in movies and stuff, and historically, people come up from there, and they wear goggles, and they have raccoon eyes, because their eyes are protected from all the dust and soot. But everything else is black, and the, the grit and grime is in everything they wear. And coal miners have to struggle with black lung disease, inhaling the dust and killing you. One day this man, and it's dark and dingy, and you can't hardly see except for some little lanterns. And One day this guy comes up to you, and he's got a helmet on with a lamp, and the lamp shines a lot of light. He goes, son, you're a dirty sinner. Well, I kind of mentioned that I didn't realize I was this dirty, and so you kind of want to brush it off, and he says, he tells you the story of salvation and all that, and you go, I want this Christ. I want to follow him. It's good. And he gives you a helmet to wear, and you've got your own little light, and he goes, you know, see up here in the wall? No, up here. Yeah? So you see that pinprick of light? Yeah? That's not a pinprick. Well, what is it? It's the opening to this mine cave. It's 100 feet tall and 300 feet wide, and outside is blue skies and puffy white clouds and green trees and green grass and sun and birds are flying by and this is the new heavens and the new earth. And he shines his light down. Do you see this path here? Yeah, follow that path until you get to that and the opening of the mine cave. And so you head out there when you meet some other people and you're all going up there and what's gonna be your experience? Now, all of you have your lights and so that's more light than you started with and you see some soot in your life. But what's gonna happen is you get really close to the mine opening. Have you ever been to a store and said, can I take this outside to see what it really looks like before I buy it? Because the lights in the store are kind of tricky. 
The light coming in is going to expose all of the soot that's totally permeated your being practically. As you grow in holiness, you will feel like you must be a terrible sinner who's far away from the Lord because you see so much sin. But you only see sin if the Holy Spirit's helping you. Like I said, there are people sitting in this room right now who never see their sins, never think about their sins. They could care less about their sins. It's no big deal. I never worried about my sins in my BC days. Like, who wants to think about sin? It's only as God works in a person's life, they see their sinfulness and they feel their lostness and their guilt and all the other things. But I never saw my sins until the Holy Spirit shined his light on me. The closer you come to the Lord, the more light you'll see and the greater sense of sinfulness you have. And you can make the wrong conclusion, oh, I must be far away from God because look at all the sin in my life. No, God the Holy Spirit's working in your life. You wouldn't see any sin if he wasn't working in your life. When Jonathan Edwards wrote books explaining the Great Awakening, he wrote two books really pertaining to the Awakening, and one of them very, explains this very issue, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to expose sin. And he says he exposes sin in the lives of people that he's working in, that he loves, that he's sanctifying. If you never see your sins, be very afraid, because you mean, that means the Holy Spirit is passing you by right now. If God has given you a sense of your sinfulness, that doesn't mean you're a really bad sinner. It means God the Holy Spirit's working in your life. He wants you to grow. I hope that's helpful. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, you have given us more than a squirt gun. You've given us six, at least six and more means of grace to grow in grace, to grow in holiness. I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters to pursue holiness with all their hearts. They will not be perfectly holy in this life, but they will grow. And they will keep on growing, and you will see to it that they make it to heaven. We give you all the praise and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.